0: Hello and welcome to Good Friends of Jackson Elias, a regular podcast about Call of Cthulhu, horror films, and horror gaming in general. I'm Paul Fricker. I'm Scott
1: Talwood And I'm Matt Sanderson. And once again we have... Duh, 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 duh. Hello, I'm Mike Mason, again. Yes, Still, yep. still change to the fireplace.
0: <laughs> yes, fortunately we have Mike here for part two of The Appeal of Investigative Games, and this week we're going to be talking about running and writing such games.
2: Yes, if you haven't already listened to part one, that's where we discussed, well, for a start, what exactly is an investigative game, and also how best to approach them as players.
0: But before all that, we've got other things to talk
1: about. Matt, you've had some Kickstarter updates on the site recently. Yeah, there's actually been another couple of Cthulhu projects pop up in the last couple of weeks that broke quite a... Quite a period, really, where there wasn't much happening up on, the, up on Kickstarter. Do you want to give yeah. us a quick rundown of what's happening? Yeah, so the, f- the first one that's up there at the minute, at the time of recording, is Sign and Sigil, which is from a collaboration between Make Belief Games and Cubicle 7, where effectively <laughs> you play the bad guys! Yay, cultists! Cultists win!
0: <laughs> how is that any different to how you usually play the game, then, Matt? Exactly, but now everyone can play like
1: me. <laughs> <laughs> That uh, uses the uh, Axiom rule set from I Am Zombie. It's predominantly being developed by the team over at Make Belief Games. With Mark Reinhagen, right? Yes, that's it. Uh, predominantly, though, I think the main driving force behind it is C.A. Suleiman, who is sort of the Mummy the Curse fame. Say, so, a uh, long time uh, White Wolf writer. Oh, okay. Yeah. And the other one, which I know will make Scott's uh, cold dead heart beat a little bit warmer. You can see him rolling his eyes at me already. Yeah, sweet dreams Cthulhu. Yay! <laughs> what the fuck is a sweet dreams Cthulhu? Well, you see it's when the Howard Lovecraft goes to bed and he gets woken up in the middle of the night by his big his uh, good old friend Cthulhu who says he can't sleep because he's afraid of the dark and the things under his bed. And it's it's so cute.
0: Is it, is it a children's book is that right yeah it's, it's a, that right? it is a
1: it is a kid's story book uh, yeah. from the same team the C is for Cthulhu um, alphabet book and the cuddly toys is this the the people that bought us the massive cuddly Cthulhu that you had on an earlier show <laughs> oh yeah oh. In fact, they um, they have got some left over from the stock that went to the States. So they are offering a limited tier where if you're in driving distance, you can go and pick it up yourself. Some people have been saying that we don't care how much it costs to ship it ship it because they really want them. Wow. And uh, they are... I hope think- we're not responsible for this.
2: <laughs> yeah. yeah. Oh, dear. You <laughs>
0: <I'm.
3: laughs>
1: See what you've
0: done now, Scott?
2: I, I, I am not taking any blame for this. <laughs> no. <laughs>
1: But they are giving away one as well as a got a freebie giveaway as part of the campaign. Plus running some competitions like they did last time, which I've entered my name in for, uh, so, doing a capturing this uh, photo contest. So if any of you listeners out there want a cuddly Cthulhu, a plush
0: Cthulhu that is probably larger than any of your gaming friends...
2: Then you are dead to me.
1: <laughs> <laughs> then, uh,
0: then come over to BlasphemousTomes.com and look up the Kickstarter that Matt was just talking about. Yay. Yeah. We also have news from Corey Welch, who is running Gatsby in the Great Race at the Nexus Games Fair in Milwaukee. This takes place on May the 27th, and uh, he's got Ed Possing and Jennifer Martin and Mark Martin all helping to run this. This be a a, a three-table game, I think, running from 6pm to midnight. So if you are interested in this, head on over to uh, our website, because we'll have more details about it there.
2: Yeah, uh, if you've not played Gatsby and the Great Race before, it is an experience. Uh, it is quite, quite unlike almost any other Cthulhu game, well, probably any other Cthulhu game you are likely to play.
1: Yeah, and so I, I played it at Gen Con and then ran it at Gen Con the f- following year with uh, the guys from uh, Nerds Domain. And yeah, that was that was a lot of fun both times around. Is it that time, Scott?
2: I guess it is time once again for me to announce... The Lovecraftian word of the week. And now, the Lovecraftian word of the week.
1: And this week, our word is one of my favourites actually occult. It's an adjective. One. Of, relating to, or dealing with supernatural or magical influences, agencies, or occurrences. Two, available only to the initiate, secret or mysterious. Three, beyond the realm of human comprehension, inscrutable. Four, hidden from view. It's also a noun. Occult practices or techniques. You see, I see VTR and I think Vampire the Requiem. What's that supposed to be? <laughs> transitive verb, I think. It is. Mm-hmm. Okay. Or as a transitive verb, see, first time one of those have come up on the show. Mm. To conceal or cause to disappear from
2: view. Wow. <laughs> that is yep. a long I, one. I, I cut a fair number of definitions out, Matt.
0: Oh, he's editing the dictionary now. I am.
2: <laughs> I am in control of the meaning of language, power before me. I
1: was just going to put magical shit, that's all I was going to do. That pretty much sums it <laughs> well, up much more concise Secret than stuff, you know, that's it. Yeah. Well, it's yeah. the
2: secret stuff rather than the magical shit aspect of it that I was attracted to for this, because obviously, once again, we are talking in this episode about investigation and mysteries. This, I think, is a very interesting word in, in Lovecraft, for that reason, because it does have that double meaning, uh, things that are beyond normal human comprehension, that are magical somehow, but also things that are hidden from view, things that are secret. In Lovecraft, those two aspects are usually combined. The occult, the, you know, the magical world, these, these monstrosities from beyond space and time that we see in, in occult terms are also very much hidden from everyday life.
0: So do we get the word occult used without the kind of
2: magical, mystical Yes, yeah, Quite often in the, you know, the term occluded, which comes from the same root. Mm. But, um, yeah, I mean, you get, uh, it's used in astronomy, for example. Right. Yeah, I've, um, heard,
1: I've heard occultation used before, mainly because it's a term that derives out of mage. But, again, to hide or obscure.
2: Yes, yeah. So, I mean, for example, I think an eclipse is a form of occultation, for example. Mm-hmm.
1: But astronomy and magic are pretty
0: much linked, aren't they? you know star I, yeah. signs and all that
2: I, yeah, I mean most, most astronomers were so quite so it's happily. real world magic though, Paul yes. talking about, yeah. I mean, most mm. astronomers, astronomers will quite happily call themselves astrologers as well I mean there's, there's no controversy there right? as well yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah I'm pretty sure
0: that's scientific fact yeah. Okay, I that's can good. hear
1: various listeners blood boil right <laughs> <this week's been>. <laughs>
2: <laughs> but I mean having talked about the two different meanings I Lovecraft did tend pretty much towards the magical side of it he very rarely used the word uh, to mean hidden and he used it 17 times which is a fairly low
0: count for a lovecraftian word but yeah. a significant one nonetheless
2: yeah i he he used a few derivations of it as well taking the count up to about 23 but occult just on its own yeah 17 times so yes yeah not one of his most heavily used words
0: but let's take a look at how he did indeed
1: use it in his writings mm-hmm from The Horror at Red Hook. The flat, he thought, must hold some clue to a cult of which the occult scholar had so obviously become the centre and leader. And it was with real expectancy that he ransacked the musty rooms, noted their vaguely charnel odour, and examined the curious books, instruments, gold ingots, and glass-stoppered bottles scattered carelessly here and there.
2: And from The Descendant, Filled with a feeling that our tangible world is only an atom in a fabric vast and ominous, and that unknown demeans press on and permeate the sphere of the known at every point, Northam, in youth and young manhood, drained in turn the founts of formal religion and occult mystery.
0: And from the case of Charles Dexter Ward. He had other concernments now, and when not in his new laboratory, with a score of obsolete alchemical books, could be found either poring over old burial records downtown, or glued to his volumes of occult lore in his study, where the startlingly one almost fancied increasingly similar features of Joseph Kerwin stared blandly at him from the great overmantle on the north wall
3: from The Haunter of the Dark. He had himself read many of them, a Latin version of the abhorred Necronomicon, the sinister Liber Evonis, the infamous Colte de Gaulle of Comte d'Alette the unexpriced of von Jonst, the old Ludwig Pring's hellish, Devermis mysterious. But there were others he had known merely by reputation, or not at all. The narcotic manuscript, the Book of Zion, the crumbling volume in wholly unidentifiable characters, yet with certain symbols and diagrams shuddingly recognisable to the occult student."
2: on to our main topic how to run and write investigative games
0: previously on the good friends of jackson Elias, yes previously folks we talked about the appeal of investigative games uh from the point of view more of a player and how we dealt with it as a player and the attractions thereof and you know if you listen to the episode then i don't really need to
2: explain it i guess and if you haven't listened to it you probably should do yeah, you can't it, be giving them orders, Scott. Yeah, yeah, but it but, but gives some context to this discussion. It would. I mean, you can be absolutely perverse and listen to this one first or in isolation, but yeah, you're hurting no one but yourself.
3: Didn't you say you were going to hit people that listen to it out of order?
0: Yeah, he just but, randomly does that anyway. Yeah. Oh,
3: yeah. okay. <laughs> that, that was the whole clue pinata
0: uh, thing that we were yeah, talking about. They, might have, they <laughs> might have clues for him. He must punch them. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, if you want to know about that, that's on it, episode one. But now we're moving on to running and writing in investigative investigative games this is one of the reasons i don't like them because they're hard to say yes
2: i and th- this is an episode that i've been looking forward to because this is something i personally struggle with an awful lot um i considering i've written a number of investigative games and yeah obviously of them and run other ones it's it's not something that really comes naturally to me so i'm hoping that the three of you can educate me about this during the course of this episode and if at the end of it i still suck in running them it's your fault well if we haven't scott we'll give you
0: your money back (laughs) excellent so yes as scott alluded to we have all written published scenarios and worked on published campaigns and many of these would fall into the umbrella of of investigative games, right? Mm. So how do we deal with that?
2: When you think about presenting an investigative game, when you think about uh, structuring it all and and how you're going to uh, present the mystery to the players, is the main focus for you on the clues?
0: No. Sometimes yes. There you go. No, but sometimes yes.
2: Uh, do you want to jump in and say yes, Matt, just to complete everything?
1: <laughs> no, I've got, I'm, gonna, I'm very much going to be on uh, Mike's side with that. That it very much depends on the story, and I'm getting evils from Paul. <laughs> <laughs> no, so that no, <laughs> You'll get lots of conditional uh,
0: statements here, Scott.
2: Yeah. Well, I mean, if it's not about the clues, what is it about? What is it I that think... that you, know, for you as a GM, makes a game an investigative game?
0: Well, I think I'm going to go back to um, something that I realised when we were talking in the first episode. If, if I go back to when playing D&D, I can remember playing D&D and every week it was a dungeon. And, you know, if it was a new dungeon, we seemed to arrive at the door and go in and start killing things. It was fun. It was good. And we'd go from one room to another and then eventually we'd find a staircase down to level two and that was pretty awesome as well. And I can remember thinking... Wouldn't it be amazing if you could run an adventure outside the dungeon? Like in the wilderness or something like that's, that. But, that's, but how that's would you just do crazy it? talk, Paul. And, uh, well exactly, it's crazy talk because because with the dungeon, I can remember slavishly drawing dungeons on those little uh, square Squares. grid maps. Mm. And with the dungeon, I know that my 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 players are in room, you know, seven there. There's, there's maybe several doors off that off that room, and they could go to rooms, you know, eight or nine or ten, and then from nine they can go to you know eleven or twelve, and then from twelve. And I can kind of see, you know, that okay, well, I'm prepared for this week so I've, I've read all those rooms on this level, and you know, maybe if they get down to that bit, they'll get to the stairs to second level. Okay, I'm all prepared for that, and I can see a kind of a, not necessarily that I know exactly the order they're going to take these things, but I can see a route of progression now. If we're out in the wilderness, you know, if we're out in a city or whatever, they they could go anywhere, right? But I think for me, the realisation that I've sort of come to is that the clues allow me to compartmentalise bits of my game world and say that, okay, so... My players are going to be... uh, We're going to kick off the opening scene here. They've got to be there because that's where the game begins. And then they're going to get clues which are a vehicle for them to get to the next, in inverted commas, room. The next, you know, maybe the next location. They might go to the old house on the hill or they might go to the research laboratory, but that's where the clues lead them. And then from the research laboratory, they might then find that they can go to the technician's house or the professor's house. But I kind of know...
2: You know, it gives me a structure, like a... So, I mean, are are you thinking in terms of almost structuring the scenario like a flowchart there?
0: I think so. And the flowchart, then, I don't formally do that, but one could almost abstract it to a flowchart, and then almost I'm looking at that dungeon map again. It's a much more organic thing than a dungeon.
2: And, and, yeah, I'd say that there's another variation of that as well, which is something I use sometimes where, instead of looking at it from the point of clues, I'll look at it from the points of NPCs. You know, what the NPCs' relationships are to each other, what's to, to what's going on, and to the investigators. And I will draw all that out in terms of a relationship map. And that relationship map is almost like a different form of abstracted dungeon, in that, you know, you're going to NPC A, and they know such and such, or their motivation is such and such, or they will lead you in such a way, and they know about NPC B, and if you you know, approach them in the right way, they might point you in the direction of npcb or they might you know go off and kill npcb if you you mm. do the wrong things and stuff like that but it, well, they again, it might... is that diagrammed approach
0: well they might you know get to you know the research assistant or whatever it is this npc and then start putting the pressure on them and asking questions you didn't expect and you know revealing either things that link into the plot that you hadn't planned or the red herrings or things that you improvised and they might go off on those so it's more open than the dungeon because if they're in the dungeon, they can only there are physically only those three rooms they go to. So once you take them out of that, there is more freedom, but we can still put some kind of structure on it. And I think that's what the investigative structure, like you said, can provide, whether it be yeah. through NPC relationship diagram or through a sort of investigative clue kind of
2: structure. I, I think if that's done well... It can be quite satisfying. I think the first investigative game I tried writing, it never occurred to me to do that as a sort of web or you know, branching diagram. And it was very simply you know, A leads to B leads to C leads to D. And you know, by the time you've got all the information out of this scene, you've then learnt enough to progress on to the next one. Mm. That works, and I think if um, what's going on in each individual scene or location or NPC is interesting enough you know, the players won't necessarily hate it, but um, like
0: <laughs> yeah, it is, well, that's, that's it is We hope, for, Scott. We hope yeah. that the players won't necessarily hate our games,
2: yeah. you know, yeah, that's yeah. the
1: best we can hope for, I think. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah, always sure. nice
2: that they have the option to hate them, and, yeah. and yeah, sometimes they're perfectly right to do so, but they shouldn't be forced to. Mm.
1: You're really selling it, aren't you? <laughs>
0: <laughs> so I think, you know, that, that A leads to B, leads to C, leads to D, well, that can be entertaining, but it's it, if, if, as a
3: player, you're aware of that, then it feels a bit, you know, it can feel a bit mechanical, maybe. Well, I uh, mean, okay. The very, ba- you know, you, what you two described is a very basic, you know, jigsaw of a investigation. You know, literally the kind of the A to B to C to get to get to point mm. Z and the, and the end of the mystery. And yes, you know, um, you may find, if you're writing an investigative game, to write down, that is your, that is your you know, your, the main trunk of the clue tree. That is the clear, you know, this is the most expedient way from A to Z and um, going through these points. Uh, and then but but then there's two things you need to do. You need to look at the parallel investigate the parallel investigation. So what if the players don't go to A, B, C, D, E? And what if they actually go from D and they miss out A, B, C, and D, or A, B, C um and you you kind of have to kind of like the way i the way i'm what i'm talking about is you need to then stop and look at it okay i'm now going to forget what i've written i'm now coming to the mystery as the player so i get to a i start at a so where do i actually would where do i actually want to go to from here not not what the scenario is telling me to do but where do i want to go to mm. and actually i found what i've just written makes me want to go to d not not b well a if- and think
0: But you, to some degree, as the yeah. writer, as the creator of the story, you're in control of that to some degree, because Absolutely. they'll only go to places that you've... Well,
3: well I mean, to you're some you're degree... Yeah, you're, you're kind of, you're kind of missing my point. What I'm, what I'm trying to say is, you need, it's, it's testing your, you're testing your, you're testing your um, inclinations of how the clue tree works, mm. because um, yeah. whilst it, it it seems obvious it's going to go from A to B to C, mm. um, it may not always actually do that once you've written it, because once you start writing it... it things change and you have new ideas and you forget what you the clue diagram because you've suddenly got the oh yeah wouldn't it be cool if this was in here so once you've done what i'm saying is you have to kind of check it once you've done the initial you know the basic sketch of the actual thing you've got to check it to check that it's still cohesive yeah but then it's all set it's then it's set dressing isn't it then because the set dressing is what the interest comes from because without the set dressing it is scott's nightmare of I walk in the room, I give them a clue, and I walk out and go, try and get another clue. Because yeah. without the set dressing, there is no character. There's no yes. atmosphere. So that's, so that, but that is almost, um, it depends how you write. You know, some people will write the clue tree first. Some people write, you know, will come up with the rough idea of the clue tree and write the characters and locations they want in the scenario. Then they will adjust them to fit the clues.
2: Yeah, and I think this is something that GMs, need to learn to do on the fly as well. One thing that I found very useful when I started doing it was... thinking of investigative scenarios in terms of the information that the players have to learn. So it's not very well to say that, you know, the guy at the research laboratory, you know, knows about what's really going on at the mortuary and obviously, you know, what's going on there will lead them to the, you know, the old tomb under the graveyard and, and so on. But if you think of it in terms, more in terms of, you know, what they really need to know is about the cult of ghouls that's operating under the graveyard. If they decide never to go to the research laboratory, if they never decide to go to the mortuary, then you, know, you find other ways of reactively putting that information or putting those clues into the locations that they go to, or you know if they go and talk to an NPC or you know, create an NPC effectively, or force you to create one. Um, you're moving, then, you're,
3: what you're saying is you're moving the clues yes. to the to the location of the players. The other the alternative to doing that, which is you know another way of doing it basically, is to actually make the the locations they haven't visited or the, the, the bits of the plot, let's say, because it could be an NPC rather than location, is to highlight their visibility in some way, some subtle way. So it may be that um, so an incident happens in that facility that they become aware of that draws their attention for some reason because there is a, there is a, a connection in terms of the activity that has just happened there. Someone's just got murdered at the graveyard yeah that they someone they knew therefore there's a reason for them to go there you want them to go to graveyard anyway, but you are tra- you're basically highlighting the graveyard to well, them through I, an action.
2: I think hmm. you've touched on something you know quite interesting there, which is I mean you said that it's someone they knew that got murdered, but the thing is because you're you're presenting a very limited amount of information to the players, uh, you're presenting the world through you know a, a series of very limited brushstrokes. That whatever you tell them is almost certainly going to be significant in some way. So that um, if you you know they're doing something unrelated and you say oh by the way you come across a newspaper article or you turn on the television and you see a story about someone getting murdered in an unusual way in the graveyard the players artificially or whatever might think oh actually you know i can't see a direct link between that and what we're doing but it sounds a bit weird and you know i've I've just been presented with this so you know i better add that to my list of clues and, you know, th- this may sound like a very artificial RPG thing, but it's something you actually see quite a lot in detective fiction. I and mean, if you read particularly Raymond Chandler, yes. there's there's shitloads of stuff like that that happens in the Philip Marlowe novels, where there's something apparently unrelated that Marlowe will, you know, he, he'll overhear another character, a supporting character, talking about it, or, you know, it, it will just come out of the blue, or an apparently unrelated, um, you know, client will come up and ask him to do something else. And, of course, it'll all tie back in into the main mystery.
1: Uh, that happens in Christie as well to a large degree that everything in there has value that it's all related to what's going on um, and I've heard this at the game table as well and to some extent it infuriates me that you've got the player sitting down and taking apart the mechanics of the story not engaging fully with it but more almost taking a like a critic's eye on it saying oh we well, could mention this therefore this is obviously important to what's going on therefore I should have to follow it without kind of just rolling with it as a fun exercise they're taking a bit more of a clinical step away from it which can bug me a bit it's a perfectly valid way of looking at it but not at the game table as far as I'm concerned if you were sat, um, sat reading it uh, reading it at home on your own thinking oh yeah I can see that working that's fine but say at the table it bugs me
2: I think that
3: comes I think that a lot of that may come down to the more experience because I'm sure nowadays hmm. Matt you probably can do it quite subtly (laughs) and and not flag it i think you know less um certainly i know from my experience you know when i started out and the early days of and stuff i awful at doing that kind of stuff and that but i know that i'm i think a bit better at doing them now i think a lot of that is showmanship that's the showmanship of the the keeper in a sense of how Mm -hmm. they how they hide the clues within in obvious sight almost so they so they in one sense yeah it is a nod to say yeah there's something over here you should go and do something about it but equally it's not too obviously Mm -hmm. kind of go there now you know you want to kind of seed it into the other stuff so they have a choice they think they have a choice yeah (laughs) but you are you are subtly engineering them in a way but that's part of the the craft of being the gameskeeper well, it almost seems degree.
0: like you're kind of conducting the orchestra really so you if the tempo is sort of dropping a bit you can kind of throw in things to pick it up yes. or direct it whereas if it's all rolling along nicely and they're doing stuff you know you don't need to throw so
3: much in so sort of going back to actual kind of the mechanics of writing the investigation, we've talked about the kind of the, the, the kind of the clue tree, as I would call it, you would might call it a flow chart or, you know, some sort of diagram or, or, or just a um, linear sequence of notes. So you've got the kind of you've got the, the map of the route. The other thing I would say to consider is once you're kind of happy with the general you know, route of play, direction of travel, is to consider the timing. And you could take this two ways. You kind of need to consider the timing of the clues because certain clues are mm-hmm. going to really explode the scenario in terms of, you know, this is going to be a reveal at this point that actually is going to move yeah. things on or actually bring it to a climax.
2: Or, or, or push the players in a particular direction.
3: Uh, yes. So understanding how to time them without it being a... Without it being a kind of a holding the players back, because equally that's no good either, because you don't want to kind of you know force the players to have to wait for the clue, but you want you want it hopefully to be an organic delivery, so actually it builds it builds to the snarish climax in an organic way, rather than you know the players hitting the climax in scene two or you know taking ages to get to the climax, which is equally as bad. Um, So uh, understand the timing of the clues Because some of the clues can be timed They can only happen after a certain thing has happened
2: But I'm thinking about what we've been talking about In terms of how we structure these things What's occurred to me is the fact that In in almost all the cases here You've been talking about um, starting from the end point And working out how the players are going to get there Um, Or at least a series of of milestones that are going to build towards something. And it occurs to me that my, my natural inclination when I'm putting something like this together, which may be why I struggle so much with investigative games, is that I tend to front load stuff as much as possible. I create a situation, uh, usually tied in with what the player characters, you know, want or are doing or you know, things they care about. And it's sort of here's this situation, here are some complications, here are some locations and NPCs that are tied in with it, particularly NPCs with agendas who are going to confuse things and and, you know, draw things up a bit you know, stir things up a bit. And you know, where is all this going to take us? The ending is the last thing I think about if I think about it at all. It occurs to me that that's, that is entirely really the wrong fit for investigative games and maybe why I struggle with them so much.
1: I wouldn't say that's wrong at all. Because one of the joys I find, especially when I sit down and run some scenarios, is how they can play out very differently each time, mm. even though they are investigative scenarios, mm. that they can have very different endings depending on what information the PCs have picked up along the way. You can have one group that realises it's this is what's going on, but haven't got hold of a MacGuffin, so they can't approach the end scene in the same way that another group, who have maybe got partially understanding of what's going on, but have got the MacGuffin, go in and, again, solve it a completely different way. Setting up the situation, giving the way different ways that the PCs can come and find what or find out what's going on, and then present the keeper with these are a few options as to how things could end up is mm. a lot more flexible and a lot more, I'd say, rewarding when you run it because then it's going to be that you get a lot more replayability out of it rather than being oh well they all arrive at this particular location at this particular time. There's X Y and Z bad guys here and there's a shoot uh, there's a shootout. That's dull you want something that's going to be different and i'd say keep it fresh every time
0: i think the things you've got in common you would call them bangs scott yeah things that and we talked about bangs in in the show before They're, they're things that the gm can have a list of that they can throw into the game to spice things up and get things going and they're the, the, incidents the, the, that the yeah. players can't really ignore
2: yeah that they've got to react to but there isn't a set reaction there isn't an expected reaction yeah it's a problem they've got to come up with their own solution to and
0: matt you're talking about sort of you know they'll find clues at certain points that sort of direct them in certain ways or allow them to do things clues and bangs are they so different in the in mm. the structure that we present them I'd, I'd say perhaps not perhaps you know there's a, there's some sort of parallel to be drawn there because well,
1: one can jump out and bite you. The other one might uh, might be. Yeah, but in waiting the way they kind of drive the game.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Oh yeah, that they both have the same kind of end purpose that they drive things forward. Yeah, but one is very much it comes get it comes to get you, and the other one is you go and get it. Yeah,
2: and I think that's an important point. I mean, when in the last episode when we were talking about the player side of things. We were talking about what made an investigative game investigative. Is the fact that you have player characters who are actively going out uncovering things. Now, the thing about bangs is, yes, you can go out and actively uncover something that triggers a bang. Or it can be something that the GM throws in to spur some action when perhaps the pace is dropping a bit. If that isn't something that the players isn't that kind have of what acti- we do with a clue, oh yeah. But but if it isn't something the players have actively gone out to seek, going back to the Raymond Chandler example, let's say that the players are floundering a bit. Uh, they've gone off. They've investigated. They've got to a you know a dead end, and then a, a new client walks in with an apparently unrelated case, and this turns out to connect up to everything else. Is is that really a clue? Because it's something that the player characters haven't uncovered. It's something that has come to them.
0: I'd argue it is a clue. You're you're putting it in their laps. I mean I'm not sure.
2: Yeah, no I mean, I'm 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 not saying that you're wrong with that, but I'm just trying to understand i'm just saying
0: mm-hmm. that, that they both serve a similar kind of purpose for the gm they drive they, in a way of driving well,
3: yeah i mean they are slightly different things but they yeah, do yeah, yeah. but they do do a very similar thing which is effectively what you're both saying is they drive the plot along yeah. yeah i think what's uh interesting about clues is also how much clue do you get there are really really important clues in the Call a Cthulhu rule, We I think we call them obvious clues, don't we? Yeah. Um, that are kind of like, well, if, if they don't get this clue, at some point during the scenario, it's unlikely they can actually achieve the end of the scenario because it's so it's such an important clue. And so, you know, it's called an obvious clue to kind of say, you know, it, it needs to be made obvious to them in such a way that they can't help but find it in some way. If they... Continue to roll badly, you know. They'll still, well, the concept being that you know, they
0: don't need to roll. Yeah, they
3: don't need to, to. They don't yeah. need to roll. But ultimately, you know, GM, you need to ensure that they get the clue. And there's then there's obscured clues, which which probably involve a, a skill roll. It doesn't really matter if they get the clue or not. If they get the clue, it kind of enlightens them a bit more. Maybe speeds things up or gives them a little bit more depth to the information. Or,
2: or alternatively, that if they don't get it, it puts them in a more dangerous or yeah,
3: exactly. position. Yeah, mm. exactly. There's some yeah. sort of consequence to it, but it's not. It's not going to end the scenario if they don't get this clue um and so i think you know you need to be aware of that in terms of how you see the clues and and to be aware that you know all groups are different and all groups tackle their investigations differently you know if it's scott's going into the game he's gonna well what can, what does the guy is hitting actually gonna say <laughs> you know the guy he sitting he might say this but he might not actually say all of that and so you're getting a kind of a partial clue but you're getting enough of the clue to allow you to move on but maybe you're only getting the bit that yeah you need to go upstairs mate but he's not telling you upstairs he's a massive monster that's going to eat your face because that's because <laughs> he's going to teach you a lesson because you hit me Yeah, that kind of thing so
1: it's yeah that's one type of clue that I love doing is misdirection or inter- rather interpretation or misinterpretation that I think we've mentioned it before. I think actually Paul mentioned it on a podcast a long time ago. There's that scene from Event Horizon where they have a message that they translate, which oh yeah Liberate may means save me. No no no. We find later on in the um, in the film it's Liberate. Two from um, May Ex fertis, uh say save, save yourself from hell. That you can have that. Interpretation of a clue that hinges one way it means one thing, and another way it means something completely different. Yeah. Absolutely, I mean the a- alien is the wonderful example of that.
3: It's mm-hmm. a, it's a it's a beacon. or no, no, it's a warning. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's yeah you know, exactly the same. But it's, mm. yeah, that wonderful turning of a of one piece of information on its head, and allowing the players to kind of have that realization in their, on their own terms and in their own time timescale really kind of you know often kind of becomes a real defining moment of a particular scenario sometimes
0: well that's something mm. we talked before about mike as and kind of termed the oh shit moment <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. It's when yeah. the players sort of go <laughs> oh shit you know we thought it was this thing and suddenly it's this thing you know yeah. we thought we were doing the right thing and suddenly we realized we've made everything worse or we've triggered the whole terrible thing
2: yeah yes i i love moments like that in a game both as a gm and as a player
1: it's, I did have one recently where one of, uh, one of my players in a game uh, twigged that what was going on and did have that, oh, crap, if I go there, I'm going to be doing this and I'm going to die. <laughs> hey, hey, well done, you yeah. get to live today. <laughs>
2: <laughs> are, are there any other really strong examples you can think of, of of interesting types of clues?
1: Drawing
3: back to real basics, and then you can kind of chunk up from there, but you, you got, you know, you've got objects... Information,
1: i so say events as well. Events,
3: being, yeah. and uh, I guess location in terms of you might, you know, you see the you see the stars aren't right. That's a really big clue, you know. But in terms of delivery, you know, information. I mean, information at the core is the call, is is the centre of all of them, isn't it? You know, that's what it's about. So the inform- it's how the information is imparted. Is it in a book? Is it inscribed on a on something? Is it does it come out of a person's mouth? Is it something overheard you know, that kind of thing? And um, one of the things for scenario writers and, and keepers is, is that kind of uh, coming up with, you know, interesting ways to deliver the clue, which, I mean, you know, crime fiction yeah. is built on that, you know, yes. in unusual and interesting ways that clues kind of come out. You know, the, the the clue, you know, crime fiction about serial killers, I've always got the, you know, the MO of the serial killer leaving a clue in a certain way on the crime scene. You know, whole TV series are based off that. And, you know, so there's a kind of certain joy in terms of like being creative in terms of the clue placement
2: yeah, yeah. So I, I think one of my favourite examples for you know, really shaking up the crime formula there is classical film noir DOA um, where it basically starts off with this guy turning up at the police station saying, you know, I want to report a murder. Um, oh, who, you know, who's been killed? Me. He realises he's been poisoned, he doesn't have long to live, and he's desperately trying to you know, uncover the identity of the killer before he dies. I think that's a, a really strong kind of twist on a classic clue.
1: Yeah, yeah. I've only ever seen the remake with Dennis Quaid, but I still
2: like it. All oh, right, I didn't realise there was one.
1: Yeah, but I've not seen the original. <laughs>
2: With all this in mind, with you know, our understanding now of what a clue is and how they should work and so on, how does that then inform how we structure the scenarios? Do we think the... the um, I was about to say classic, but almost cliched mode of you follow the trail of clues, you learn enough information, then you get to the horror at the end and you, you know, you die or go mad. Do, do you think that really works anymore? I, if, if it doesn't, or, you know, if you can't find interesting ways of presenting it, I, how do you shake that up? How do you come up with a fresh approach to the, the, the classic Call of Cthulhu investigation?
0: I don't think there's a formula, or I, I try not to use a formula. I think each scenario, each story is different. I mean, I'm sure there are commonalities between them, but I don't aim to have a set way of doing it because mm, yeah. I think you know, different stories demand different ways of delivery. Not very really helpful, but yeah, I don't think there's like one set way.
2: Let's elaborate a bit on that then. Can you think of some concrete examples, maybe not giving spoilers for scenarios you've written, but ways in which you've shaken up that formula?
1: I've got one that I've used a couple of times I think I've mentioned it uh, in previous episodes that to some extent I I play on the player's expectations that in certain instances they're going into a game and thinking there's a blatant bad guy here someone is doing something bad and I've got to stop them. What if there's no bad guy? What mm. if it's just a situation that some poor hapless sod has found themselves in? What if it's something that is beyond just the people here and now that they can see in front of them? What if there is, as I say, no moustache twirling villain, and it is just situation has got so out of hand that that's where you find yourselves at that moment in time? And it does it, a lot of them suddenly find that they're like a ship without a rudder. They go, "Holy crap! What do I do now?" Yeah. The investigation that has no answer
3: can be unfulfilling and unrewarding for a player. But if handled right, it can almost be the essence of horror because yes. mm-hmm. of the fact that you come to understand why you can't yeah. understand yeah. it or why there is no answer because the answer is so horrific or so untouchable that, that actually therein lies the horror of the situation. Mm-hmm. But I mean, I, I would also say, because obviously... A variety of people listen to this from experienced keepers and, and professional writers to, to people who've literally just picked up the game. And I think it's okay if you wanna run a really simple A to oh, A yes. to D scenario. If that's, you know, if that's what you're comfortable doing and starting off with. And because, uh, you oh. you know, we all, that's what we all started with. I was, I was
2: about to say, and, you know, I, th- yeah. I, I think if you're a starting keeper, you probably should. Yeah. And I think that was one of the strengths of the, the Doors to Darkness collection in that, you know, some of those scenarios from a modern design perspective might seem a bit oversimple or a bit linear. But if you're a starting keeper, that's exactly what you want.
1: Whereas very much adhering to the kind of school that Mike's saying, and kind of the more, I'd say, advanced end of the keeper scale. Um, without giving spoilers, there is a particular Delta Green scenario that I adore. It is fantastic, but it is completely unwinnable. It is the experience of playing through that scenario, realising there is no way to survive. I'm not saying no way to survive this, but no way to solve and kind of do a traditional tick box win. Well, that that is,
3: means you're, you're hearkening to to a scenario that's, uh, that goes way back. It actually first appeared in Dagon magazine, and it's a scenario <laughs> called... Um, uh, you in your small corner by Andy Benison, and for me, that was the first time I ever read a no-win scenario. Huh, uh, I don't know that one. Uh, it actually, ended up because I, I, it's one of my all-time favourite scenarios, and I reprinted it in the um, the Whisper. Actually, I kind of don't want to give it away, but you you, you basically <laughs> yeah. you, you start with what is a very formal, you know, you are playing kind of police officers and caseworkers that kind of thing in in England in this particular circumstance, uh, looking at the case of a, a person that is, um has... think they've gone missing and you follow a very procedural kind of situation but it leads you to this point of revelation that means that you now understand well you think you kind of understand what's happened and there is no way to solve this and you have now damned yourselves into the same situation nice it's it's a wonderful there is no way to win you you will yeah, end the scenario either drawing to black or you're all dead. But wonder because it because it took a really routine investigation and then just flips it, which is you know, I think a wonderful trick, hmm. it's, um, you know, you can't do it every time, you know. Yes. No, otherwise
1: it becomes, Then it, it's just like feeling playing one of Scott's games one after the other, that suddenly everything is bleak and depressing and
2: horrible. <laughs> well, yeah, I was thinking when you were talking about that, that, yes, I have published at least one scenario where you've, you've lost before you even start playing. Yeah. And, <laughs> yeah, th- there, is, there is no way to... Yeah, th- there is no way to have an even remotely positive outcome on that one. <laughs> But also I mean to answer my own question, in terms of structuring the the investigation in a different way, I, I suppose the one example you know, that, that, that I've done that I think I'm happiest with was one I wrote for you, Mike, which was Blackwater Creek. Mm. It is sort of an investigation, but at the same time, it's done in a very sandboxy way. It's lots of locations and NPCs, each one of which you know holds a different facet of what's really going on. But there's no expectation that the player characters will go around, you know, see every bit of it. There, they, there, there are you know, a bunch of possible climaxes in there. They may miss out huge chunks of it. But I'd like to think that you know, whichever approach they take and whatever you know parts of it they come away with, it's going to be satisfying.
3: Yeah.
2: The other, I mean, just I'm just thinking
3: um, of an example, is the um, scenario in the rule book, the um, Crimson Letters, oh, yeah. uh, which is um, um, Alan Bly wrote, it, and where you have an investigation, but it is completely open ended, and the keeper yes. decides. So every, you could actually sort of replay it and it would be a completely different scenario every time because mm. you actually decide, you're given a range of NPCs and you're told to pick which one you want to be the central focus almost yes. which, which one may be the actual villain of the piece mm. um, and they're all very different and they've all got different motivations and different reasons for things and so the outcome and actually the progression of the inves- investigation can be very different every time You know, depending on how you want to structure and play that
0: yeah I think that was a very unusual format to be given a kind of a a multi choice on who the bad guy was yeah well,
2: and and also I think that that 's a really good scenario to have in the core rule book because it shows a a, a different way of of scenario design, and I think yeah, you know, having the haunting amidst the ancient trees and crimson letters is the three introductory scenarios for for Zemthed works very well like that, because the haunting is you're know, very much the classic Call of Cthulhu investigation of you you go around you do your research a bit you you go to a central location you you explore that a bit and then you have your revelation. Amidst the ancient trees is much more kind of sandboxy. You've got a definite um, you've got a definite goal in mind, but the, the clues and so on are presented again geographically you know you, you make your own way through it you find out little bits of it and then you know you get your revelation at the end of that and with with crimson letters it's it's all NPC interactions
0: Yeah, so there's a selection of clues that you might get from each NPC, if i'm recalling correctly that's right you, and there's a few and locational ones. and but talk it's to them predominantly, yeah, some yeah, location, but
3: predominantly as you say it's mpc as i recall yeah, the locational
0: yes. ones kind of bolted on not bolted the NPCs. on, sorry, but yeah.
3: were, were, were added on later. Absolutely, yeah,
0: because, because of the NPCs. On it. it was right. just a bunch yeah. of NPCs yeah. when we first got yeah.
1: it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah,
2: yeah. 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 And, and I think those, you know, between them show three very strong and very you know, iconic ways of constructing a Call of Cthulhu scenario. Okay, shifting gears slightly, question for, you know, for each of you. How hard should it be in a game... For a player character to find a clue?
1: I'd say it honestly depends on the clue. It depends on the scenario and it depends on the characters you've got. I personally, if I if I'm playing, I like to get a kick out of the fact that, yeah, I found quite an important clue that was quite obscure, but it says that's a that's a win for me, is yeah. being able to find, hey, I found that thing that was really well hidden. Go me. Mm. I like to pass that on to players that play in my games. Um I like to put a situation in there where the character has all the chance of finding that clue but I'm not going to force feed it to them they have they will have to go and get it but I don't make it hard I just make just set the scene for them and then it's for them to put the dots together
0: Yeah, I'd, I'd kind of go along with that I wouldn't um, spoon feed it to them uh, and if they miss it they miss it um, and like I said, when I, I mean, the game I referred to earlier with Marcel and Latep when I first played it you know, we went to Egypt on the strength of one name and it was like well do we go to cairo and look for this guy because i'm not even really sure he's related to it but we didn't know where it it was so hard finding clues but it kind of led us on and and that was that was tremendous fun because we were really having to sort of scrabble to sort of find stuff out um and really felt like we were really working for it
3: it was good i think there's a certain challenge um and i think I think getting anything too simply is as much of a turn-off as not getting it at all yeah. sometimes. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, I think a, a little sen- a, a sense of achievement to some degree... Is a is a motivational factor for players. It's part of the enjoyment of the game. You know, oh yeah, I made the roll, or I beat it out of him, or I you know <laughs> I talked him round. You know, without making any rolls. And so yeah, you know, as a keeper, you've got this toolkit. You know, you can you can you know you want to deliver this clue to the players because you need the scenario to move on. But how you actually give the clue. You have, a, you have a range of tools you can use in that instant. You can you can do it through role play. And if it doesn't quite come out, then you can make a role. Or you can make a role and then play it as the role play. You can make it obvious and say, you know, the clue is there. You know, you know so the clue, you say, this this book is sat all alone on the desk. And you've told them that there's the clue. You've got to open, you know, you've got to open the book and read it. But, but you know, but they've got to make that decision. And then if they ignore it, then they can walk away. And you know for a well, while I give them the clue. And so when they've got stuck later on and they make an idea roll to get back on track, you can say, well, you remember that book that I mentioned? It was all alone on that desk. Hmm. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and now so they've got to go back and find it, but somebody moved the book, and they've got to you know, suddenly the adventure's moved on, and they're moving up. In the, but it's you're trying to keep excitement there to some degree. So, you know, use the tools that you have in a meaningful way that... Gives the player, you know, a tangible sense of achievement to some degree, without making it impossible. You know, if every clue's an extreme role, then you're not going to get very far, and people mm. are going to get fed up.
1: And the GM's going to be stuck with a whole load of handouts they wish they could give the players. <laughs> yes. <laughs> what do you say,
2: Scott? I, yeah, it's something I struggle with. Again, um, my natural inclination, which I have to fight against an awful lot when running investigative games, is to be parsimonious with handing out clues, to make it really difficult for the players to, to find stuff. So, for example, if they're interrogating someone who obviously has a secret or you know, knows something, I will... By reflex, roleplay that character as being evasive and and blocking and so on really sort of expect the players to, you know, kick off against that. And, you know, I will quite often find that players give up quite quickly if if they feel they're being blocked by an NPC. And a lot of players don't think to call for an interpersonal role. Uh, so sometimes you yeah, i'll prompt that and sometimes i will just sort of say oh you know, do, do you think he's lying do you want a psychology role here or something like that because yeah it, it, it's surprising how often people don't do that
0: well actually what you often do scott from my observation is not that it's you you play the characters evasive and then you tell the players that he's lying yeah and then it's kind of like okay we've got this uh nice old guy from the you know the library or whatever and we're chatting to him and we've asked him the question and now we know he's lying but what do we do about that i mean we're going to lean over the desk and start beating him up no just shoot him in the kneecap it works every time (laughs) you know what are we going to (laughs) do
2: but it's it's not just those interpersonal ones i don't know i what you were talking about before mike with the the timing part i constantly have to remind myself particularly with convention games that I want to try to move the action on to something more interesting. And I'll find myself almost hoarding clues and, and you know, sort of saying, oh, thinking that if I give this th- them this information too early on, then they're going to wrap it up in 10 minutes. And, I, you know, I, I keep having to remind myself from experience, no, no, that won't happen. No, that never happens. And yeah. by dropping that in, that I'll introduce a sense of urgency, a bit of uh, energy into the game. Um, yes, yes, they'll suddenly understand a lot more about what's going on. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. If
3: you are unsure, think to yourself, is this an obvious or an obscured clue? Because there's your answer. Yeah. If it's an obvious clue, then do your best without force-feeding it to them to give the clue to the players. If it's obscured, then hold it back as much as you like and make them work for it. And I think that's a, a handy rule of thumb. Obviously, there's a bit of gray in between, but, you know...
2: Yeah, I, I must admit, I tend to look at it less from the point of view of whether it's obvious or obscure, and more from the point of view of what that revelation of information will do to the game at this stage. Sure,
3: because I, I think you, you, I imagine we're all the same. As in our running, we're also kind of in our. It, there's an inner voice that's also talking about writing it, and there's like, well, if I was right, you know, it's is now I wrote it, or I don't know what it, you know. There's a there's a writing head as well as the the GM's head, and sometimes they can. Yeah. be in opposition mm-hmm. but
0: also there's that kind of i don't know director composer thing of, of, of the gm you're sat at the table like you say scott and you're only 10 minutes into the game and you're thinking this game slot is kind of you know my evening is we've got until 11 o'clock that's four hours and there's a part of you thinking if i give it all to them now they're going to be done by eight o'clock so you're basically you're pacing the game so you're yeah you're you're kind of you know you've got a handle on the throttle
2: well except you know i i think the point i was trying to make is that's not actually that easy a thing to judge and i uh, you know the the thing that i struggle with is that i'm so over cautious on that that um, you know, the the times that I've gone against my natural instincts and you know, thrown in those clues that I know should get into the players' hands at an early stage and leave them to deal with the consequences of it. Um, those you know tend to be much more satisfying games. Yeah, but I've,
0: that's you managing the pace of the game. Oh, you're yeah, putting yeah. them into the players' hands. I'm not oh, saying yeah, stop yeah, but, them, but by doing it, you're,
2: you're. Oh, absolutely! It's just the fact that it. It, 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 it sometimes, you know, doesn't feel right to do so. Right. Yeah, you know, that, that, you know, that, there's a part of me that's thinking they haven't earned it. They haven't worked for it at the, enough at this stage. Which, you know, if I were on the other side of the gaming table, I'd absolutely hate the GM. You'd for. be railing against it, mm, yeah, wouldn't you? absolutely. You, you really yeah. would, yeah. yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. And sometimes that's yeah. transparent, isn't it? Sometimes, yeah. as a player, the GM's got clear, stuff to clear. Clearly, us you, are, up, but they're you are you are holding
3: us back, and I hate yeah, I hate that really as a, on annoying. both sides of the table. So, I mean, my advice would be. Just do it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> because, yeah. Because you'll only learn from the experience of doing it. And that's my advice to everyone is, you know, just do it. If you oh, I think I need to get the clue, but I don't really want to. Oh, just do it.
0: Well, See what and happens. And I think you know then, don't you? you? Know. The, the, the players have kind of, they've done something. And if you're thinking, well, they ought to really get this clue now.
3: Then they probably, well, they probably ought to get it. They to get it. If, yeah, they, yeah. if
0: they've kind of failed all the roles and they're looking, you know, down the cellar when the thing's in the attic and they're totally missing it. Well, they probably shouldn't be getting it. But the players aren't then going to be thinking, oh, you know, we should be, you know. He's the, well, the worst us. thing
3: in any role-playing game is making it boring and dull.
2: Yeah, and and I keep thinking of uh, some words of wisdom that were shared by our, our mutual friend Gaz uh, of, of the uh, What Would the Smart Party Do podcast, um, who, who said, no game ever suffered from too much pace. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, I I mean, obviously, I'm I'm sure you can come up with counter examples to that. But I think there is a bit of wisdom there in that, um, yeah, particularly for one shots. And I I suppose for chapters of longer campaigns, I'd much rather have something that, you know, perhaps runs under the time allocated. uh, But, you know, it's a great experience. uh, That's right. Every moment of it is exciting rather than thinking, oh, yeah, I got my four hours worth. But, you know, two hours of it were worth playing.
3: No, I, I would much rather play a two-hour game and and have a fantastic time and end it, and then have two hours to chat with everyone. Like, hey, wasn't that a great game? Wow, well, yeah. when well, you did that, and that, and that. <laughs> great. Then four hours of like,
1: oh my god, I wish this game yeah. would end. Why, did, why didn't he give <laughs> us
2: the fucking clue? Yeah. <laughs> yes,
3: exactly.
1: Yeah, <laughs> exactly. I've, I've had a, there's one particular instance which I always keep at the uh, kind of the, tucked away in the back of my mind, thinking if I'm presented with a player that does something interesting, something unexpected and I'm teaching that uh, on that edge of saying well does it happen or doesn't it happen I'll always go yes this hap- it will happen because I played in one particular game where anything I tried to do that when in retrospect when we got to the end of the scenario could have been yeah actually I could have solved that if the GM had actually answered my question the GM just stonewalled me um, on oh, asked um, um when I asked particular questions he just did not respond and I eventually just gave up and just sat down when As I said, realising that if he had actually responded and I'd been able to follow through on my actions, I would have finished the scenario in about half the time.
2: All right, let's move on to perhaps a slightly more contentious question here. I say contentious, but I imagine, you know, you'll have fairly obvious opinions about it. But do you think clue gathering in a game is a job for mechanics or a job for role-playing?
1: I'd say more role-play. If you can do something that would justify you getting a clue or a piece of information, then you can get it. The mechanics shouldn't hold you back, is what I would say. I don't
0: know. I think the mechanics do play a part in it. I think the spot hidden role or,
3: or whatever, fair enough. Okay, it's a really easy answer. I'm not playing a board game, so it ain't just mechanics. I'm playing a role-playing game, so I want to do a role-playing and a bit of mechanics. So a bit of both, yeah. please. Yeah. Because that's the game I'm playing. I'm not playing a board game where it would be purely mechanics. I'm playing a role-playing game, which involves role-playing so I want to do a bit of role playing, and I've got supporting mechanics that support my role playing. The end. Thanks very much. Good night. Yeah,
2: I, the, the reason I ask this <laughs> is I'm not naming any names, but I, I I remember listening to an actual play recording of a game of Trail of Cthulhu sometime back, where uh, the GM ran it in such a way whereby, you know, the, the, the players would go into a particular scene and it would be, right, okay, who has this ability? Uh, do you have that ability? Okay, right, but you, because you have that, you, you're going to spend a point, you're going to spend a point. Right, okay, that means you notice this, this and this. And the player at this stage hasn't said anything other than, you know, yes. Yeah, you know, at that stage, their the clue Hoover has gone off. They picked up the clue. There's been no role playing involved, and it was one of the least satisfying games I've ever listened to.
1: Yeah, I'd find that incredibly dull if I was in the player's position. Say, so yeah. what? Why am I here? I'm just watching you tell me everything.
2: I mean, paralleling that with
0: a D and D game, you might as well say, well, who's got uh, who's got an axe? Okay, you've killed the orcs. Next room. Yeah. Who's got a bow and arrow? Okay, you've shot that. Whereas that's the most interesting kind of D and D for me because it wipes out that <laughs> combat to
1: not even a roll.
0: <laughs> so, what about um, have any of us been in a investigative game that has just stalled, fallen flat, and broken?
2: Hmm. Or yes. run one, perhaps? Well, that, I, I that guess has yeah. But, I We're mean, talking well, about
0: running games here.
2: Well, I mean, there is this classic idea about Call of Cthulhu that you will, at some point, fail a role and the investigation will stop. Have you ever actually seen that happen?
0: That's exactly games? my yeah. question, yeah. yeah. Well, that's what I'm talking about, personal experience yeah. rather than yeah. this no, I, 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 I
3: hear this apocryphal story all the time. Yeah. Well, I did used to. I've never seen it, I've never experienced
1: it, and I've never actually met anyone who said it's happened in their games. I haven't played Game of Cthulhu with it, but I have played in a game where that happened. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it was Unknown Armies. The uh, Green Glass Grail, it's called. It's oh, in yeah. the Weep collection. Sure, yeah, yeah. Yeah, we never finished it, because we had no fucking idea on how to go, uh, where to go. Um, certain NPCs we met, we tried roles, we didn't succeed, we left, because it was pretty much, oh, you've had your chance, now you're out. And so the whole thing ground to a halt, so we never got to the end of it. And the GM couldn't, like, you know, get the game going again in any way? No, we, we ended up scrapping the scenario and playing huh. something else. Right. So the,
2: the, was it just the GM couldn't think of a way of reincorporating or, you know, um, representing the clue in a different way? Or?
1: Exactly that. They said that even uh, she was looking at it going, I have no idea how to get you back on track. Okay, okay. N- next game.
2: No, I I mean, I remember... Right. I mean, this is, you know, more down to inexperienced GMing. I remember back in the 80s, when I first ran Masks of Nyarlathotep. It was the first campaign that I'd ever written. And because I hadn't developed the confidence at that stage to sort of rewrite bits on the fly and and, um, reincorporate clues in those ways, there were a couple of bits where... It wasn't that it hit dead ends, but there were certain bits of information I wanted to get into the hands of the players, and they didn't make the right roles, and they didn't talk to the right NPCs, and I really wasn't quite sure how to do it. So I think confidence makes a difference Oh, huge I think exp- experience and yeah.
3: confidence certainly helps. And I mean, and that's why in 7th edition, there are there are mechanics to get you out of trouble if you yes. find you know that you aren't that experienced and, and, and you're, you're, you're maybe playing a published scenario that you haven't got it completely in your head, let's say, and you find yourself running into this dead end well you have multiple mechanical means to actually rejig the uh, the start engine of the scenario and, and start it in an, uh, you know, a you know a day later or you know use use the push mechanic or the luck bend or or the idea roll well ultimately to, the, know, idea roll. the idea so roll, if they're but, totally yeah. stumped
0: then we can have the idea roll and kind of put it back on track but if they fail it they're back on track but in a bad situation yeah you've, yeah. you've up the,
3: you've up the you've up the cost of the consequence of the of that, but but ultimately, you know, you, you've got the car running in the right direction now, and hopefully they can pick it up and run with it. And there's no there's no, there's no um, limit to how many times you need to use it. If yeah. that, if you need to keep using it, that's that's
2: fine. Yeah, you so know, keep, keep digging the hole deeper.
3: <laughs> yeah, hopefully, you know, as you as you develop um, your experience and confidence with with running I Call of Cthulhu. You find that happens less and less because you've yeah. become more in tune and more flexible. And you know, just the, just the weight of the number of games and things you've run, you you find you have ideas you steal from previous games or other yeah. scenarios you've written. You just oh, I'll incorporate that here. That'll make it work, and you know, it becomes easier to do.
0: Yeah, I think. I mean, the analogy I would use is, you know, when you start out playing Call, or running Call of Cthulhu, you perhaps like we said, it's it's a simple sort of step by step game. And it's a bit like, you know, getting on the train and going from know, London to Leeds or something. And you go through some interesting places, but, you know, you're going to get there and, and it's pretty direct. Whereas once you get more experience with running it, it's more like a road trip. You know, the players don't really know where they're going, but they get in the car and they drive to an interesting location <laughs> and maybe they go down a, a wrong road and, you know, they get back on and they kind of, you know, it's a, a circuit's route, but they do end up somewhere interesting. And to me, that's, you know, that's, yeah. that's, that's, that's the and
3: fun of it. A big, slightly... Um, Controversial. Um, if you find it really hard running investigative games, don't run them. Yeah, the Call of Cthulhu is 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 a wonderful system because it you can run any type of game with it. Run. You know, survival horror. Run. You know, pick a horror film that you really like and emulate that on the, t- on the well, table.
2: I mean, that that you know, the game you published last year for uh, the free RPG day, the derelict. Yeah, well, that, that that's not investigative. That's no, you can day. wander around
3: the ship and pick up a few clues, but ultimately, yeah. that's <laughs> not what the scenario is about. It's no. hide from the monster before it eats you.
0: Yeah, I think many of the scenarios that we've written aren't traditional investigative no.
3: scenarios. And I think also, you know, spice, keep keep things fresh for the players. If you're running a long investigative game, great, enjoy that. And then, you know, run a different style of game for a while. You know, keep it fresh for the players so it's not a continual slog of investigation, perhaps. Mm-hmm. Particularly if your players aren't, you know, they seem to get a bit tired of it. Then throw in a, throw in a one-night shock horror or something. You know, keep it fresh.
2: Hmm. Building towards wrapping this up, I mean, based on what we've talked about with in terms of, of presenting clues and finding clues, I mean, if all of that goes horribly wrong, or if the players just you know, go down wrong avenues and you know, don't, don't think of the right things to do, in the end, is the game a failure if they don't learn what's going on?
1: No. Sometimes I think it can be a lot more amusing, for at least for me as the GM, that they can come up with their own theories about what the hell was going on, and I'll just sit back and smile and say, yeah, it could be. Yeah, certainly I've played in games where, you know, we
0: haven't solved what's going on. I don't really know what happened. I had a great time. It was great fun being involved in it. And at the end, we're like, so what was going on? Yes.
3: Yeah. I mean, it gives you the option. I mean, you know, often, you know, you get that point that Paul's just said, and you kind of go like, okay, well, look, what's kind of going on with this? And you kind of spill the beans. But sometimes you might go, well, well, give it a few weeks and we'll come back to it. I mean, <laughs> yeah. maybe a different set of characters wander yeah. into this situation <laughs> yeah. now, you know, who know what you know. And, you know, you move it on well, maybe a Maybe they
0: investigate what happened to your previous characters. Yeah, yeah there's, there's <laughs> load yeah. of bodies lying on the floor in the room.
3: Yeah. <laughs> and, you, and they've left all these pockets full of notes. And it's like, yeah, um, you know, you, you might be able to spin it out and get more games out of it and keep it, you know... And, and the players might be doubly invested now because, right, we
2: really, we're really going to do it this time. <laughs> and, and I think even if you don't come back to it, as long as the ending is satisfying and climactic, then, yeah... And and the players have enjoyed it. You've had a good game.
0: The good friends of Jackson Elias now have a Patreon page. Think of it as an electronic donation box to help with the running costs of the show. The podcast will remain free and donations are entirely voluntary. Follow the Patreon link on blasphemoustomes.com. Thanks for
2: listening. Well, it's that time in the episode once again where we thank those generous people who have given us money via Patreon. The money you give us pays for all our hosting costs, our bandwidth costs, the domain registration, uh, the occasional new bit of equipment, all the things that go into actually making a podcast and allow us to actually do this. So thank you very much to each and every one of you. And we have a few new people to thank this week. Yeah, let's begin with a big thanks to Gavin Peebles.
1: Indeed, thank you very much, Gavin. Yes, thank you very much, Gavin. And also, thank you goes out to Tyler Moorhart. So thank you very much, Tyler. Yes,
2: thank you, Tyler. Thanks, Tyler. And thank you very much to Marco Menarini. Thank you, Marco. Indeed, thank you very much,
0: Marco. And raising up to the $3 level, we have a big thanks to Anthony O'Darley. I hope I'm pronouncing your name there correctly, Anthony. Indeed. Thank
1: you very much, Anthony. Yes, thank you very much, Anthony. Cheers. And
2: And indeed, another thanks and a cheers go out to Corey Welch. Yes, long-time friend of the show. Thank you very much, Corey.
0: Yeah, great guy. Cheers, Corey.
2: Cheers. Cheers, Corey.
0: Is that it? I hope so. I think that's
2: all of them, right? It's never it, Paul. It's never it, because... You know what is waiting there in the dark recesses of the recording studio, whispering, calling to us.
0: More $5
2: backers? Yep. They're ever-present, and we have to sing to them.
1: See, it was your idea, and now you're coming around to my way of thinking. (laughs) I
0: am. (laughs) All right. So, uh, yeah, so when we get a $5 backer, we sing our praises to them and uh, our gratitude And this week, it's the turn of
1: Robert Mayer. Oh, boy, Robert, you brought this on yourself.
2: Yes, thank you, Robert, and we hope you like this. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you!
1: And the next cacophony goes out to Neil Latham.
2: Yes, well, thank you very much, Neil.
1: Thank you, Neil.
0: Enjoy. Neil So once again we've been getting some feedback online about our previous episode and the discussions therein. Scott, I understand Evan Dawkins' has been in touch.
2: Yes, uh, he sent us a, a message via the Blasphemous Tomes website. Yeah, I, I was really pleased to get this, and, and the last few messages that he's got, I I, I've been a fan of Evan Dawkins' work for a long, long time. If if um, yeah, On the off chance you don't recognise his name, he's a comic artist. He's been producing fantastic comics for a long time, like uh, Milk and Cheese, Dairy Products Gone Bad, and and Dork, and has recently been working on a Lovecraftian project called Call of Cthulhu, uh, this is, uh, which probably makes more sense if you see it written down but i'll link to it from the show notes so
0: evan says i thought event horizon was an enjoyable warm mess with a game cast and enough small surprises to offset the badly shifting back and forth between hellraiser alien and a typical slasher minus points for my least favorite genre trope my long dead relative is somehow here and i'm sad instead of calling bs on it so please kill me yeah, that does kind of happen, doesn't it? it yeah, uh, all these dead uh, yeah. relatives. Hey, and...
1: it's my kid. I somehow didn't notice that they were on the spaceship with me all the time, but I'm going to run over to them even if they can't walk now. Yeah! <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah, there was an awful lot of that in this film. And yeah, it does require a certain certain suspension of disbelief, which I probably don't have the energy to put into this film. <laughs> but anyway, on to your comments about Columbo, Scott. Yes, I made a throwaway comment in the last Investigative Games episode about uh, Will and Peter Blatty's character uh, Detective Kinderman and the similarities to Columbo. But Mr Dawkins, uh did point something out here. One thing,
1: or rather just one more thing, I hope you don't mind me mentioning, is in regard to Scott's Columbo aside on episode 103. The Columbo character predates the publication of The Exorcist, the first Peter Falk pilot for the series aired in 1968, before that, the character appeared in an anthology TV episode and a play. And the second folk pilot also came out before the book was published. Now I remember seeing the first Columbo um, appearance on TV. That it was in that anthology um, mm. in that anthology show, and he was a mean bastard. He really he, uh, he oh. was he was not the kind of dotting oh just one more thing kind of uh, friendly, personable, almost clownish type character. No, he was a real hard. Really, really
2: mean huh. character in it, yeah. Hmm. But apparently the story doesn't end there, right? No, it doesn't, because I coincidentally, uh, about the same time, Tony Nielsen posted an unwitting repost to this on Google+, uh, where he posted a link to an interview with William Peter Blatty, where Blatty was discussing exactly this. And uh, I, I shall endeavour to link to this from the show notes. But the, the the pertinent bit was, um, yeah, uh, Blatty saying the Exorcist predated Columbo. It was close, but what people forget is that after I had submitted my manuscript to the publisher, another six to eight months went by. Not to mention all the time that I slaved over the manuscript a year before that. I feel quite strongly that Columbo ripped off Kinderman. Uh, There's very little doubt in my mind. I asked Peter Falk. He said, no, it had been planned before your book came out. But my manuscript was circulated all over town, all the agencies and production companies and studios. And somebody said, and I know who that somebody is, wouldn't this be interesting for our detective? I must say it does tick me a little. So, yeah, there does seem to be some... Uh, confusion about this. Uh, I, yeah, it could be you know, a classic case of parallel development. It happens the whole time. But yeah, yeah, it's uh, well, I, I, I don't think we'll ever know for sure.
0: But like you know, fifty years later on, he's probably over it now.
2: <laughs> well, he's dead, so yes.
0: <laughs> well, you that know won't, that won't stop him. <laughs> that won't stop him. He'll be back take revenge. And over on Twitter, we have a comment from Mrs. Meeple. Commenting
1: about the episode that we did about Lovecraft, which is uh, I think was episode one hundred, if it I recall was. correctly. Listening to the really interesting and important discussion of Lovecraft and racism by at Good Friends of JE. I never made the connection between the fear of others themes and Lovecraft's xenophobia. Penny dropping moment. Oh,
2: well, we're glad to provide that moment of enlightenment. So yeah, it's um yeah, I mean, it's something that, yeah, I think, you yeah, know, particularly Paul and I have discussed quite a lot, um, you know, not, not on the podcast, but in private discussions about, you know, how much we we felt that Lovecraft's racism and xenophobia actually played a depressingly important part in what makes his fiction work for us. It was good to actually talk about that on the episode, and we're, we're glad that it, it hit a chord with you. Yes, and we've got a new iTunes review. Uh, we're Obviously, very grateful every time we get an iTunes review because, you know, not only is it a nice little boost for our egos, but uh, apparently it makes quite a big difference as far as visibility on iTunes is concerned, you know, getting multiple reviews and getting a a steady flow of them. So, you know, if any of you feel moved uh, to actually write a review, uh, we would be exceedingly grateful.
0: The review is written by somebody who names themselves a new friend of Jackson Elias. And what a fine name that is. Indeed. (laughs) Real good choice. When I first started listening to the podcast, I was a big Lovecraft fan, but had never played a pen and paper RPG in my life. Skip forward a year, and I've convinced my mates to have a weekly game and am knee-deep into running masks. In brackets, four character deaths so far. We're all new to this, so I'm pulling my punches a little. Then he goes on to say, The host's knowledge and enthusiasm are top-notch. Essential listening for any keeper, player, or even just horror fan. It's always a good day when a new episode drops. Couldn't recommend it more.
2: Oh, thank you, and well, uh, we're, we're glad to tempt you into this this strange and fascinating world of tabletop role playing. And yes, hope it's it keeps being everything you want it to be. We're doing something right. Holy shit! <laughs> I mean, you're not the first person to say
0: they've they've turned to sort of playing Call of Cthulhu. Maybe they haven't played Call of Cthulhu before, but this is somebody who hasn't played role playing games before mm. that has been inspired to. So and oh, is that's... now dropped in
1: on masks.
0: Yeah, yeah, that, that <laughs> really <laughs> is jumping out the deep end. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> wow, good, uh, good play to you. Yeah, great stuff.
2: If you want to send us any feedback or get in contact with us, you can find us on blasphemisthomes.com. There's a contact form there on the website. There are also links to all our social media presences. Uh, or Alternatively, you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, Google Plus, um, or just hiding in your closet at night. And in conclusion,
0: have we got to the root of the appeal of writing and running investigative games?
2: Um, I feel I'm slightly better about the whole topic now. I mean, I, I I still don't think I'm exactly a convert, but I mean, this has sort of assuaged some of my doubts that I've been doing it wrong uh, all this time. And and yeah, I feel slightly happier now about you know the maybe slightly idiosyncratic approach that I've got.
1: Hang on, we we got that on tape. Scott is slightly happy. Mm.
2: Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I'm I'm less miserable than usual. That's about okay that. then.
1: Right. That's good. Don't rock the boat too much.
0: <laughs> and sorry, Matt, but we're not using tape.
2: Oh, you know what I mean. <laughs> yeah. It's, uh, th- this is what happens when you record with old fogies like Matt. <laughs> not up to date with modern technology like us youngsters
1: i was saying i've got i was just saying earlier when we went to lunch that say i had a huge collection of vhs tapes still what's the problem <laughs> so mike you were just suggesting we
0: uh, we each put forth uh, a book or a film or a tv show that we're enjoying that kind of encapsulates the investigative feel that we might want to go for yeah i was paul what would you say I've just been watching Fargo, so uh, I'd recommend that. It's, it's, uh, it's a great show. The, t- the TV, uh, the, the TV, or the TV show. The TV show I've just been watching. Uh, I haven't got to the end of the first season yet, but I'm, I'm close to it. And the bits in there that sort of overlap, these characters that don't, you know, it's hard to see how they relate, and there's, in, there's police officers that are investigating it, there's some there's the, the hitman's almost doing investigation himself. There's a couple of other guys that kind of come in that are working for a kind of mafioso type person, and they're investigating what's going on. So there's quite a lot of different people all kind of investigating each other, um, and a lot of plot threads all interwoven. But I would say there's definitely investigation in it. So yeah, that's an interesting way of having it.
3: Cool, Mike. What well, I think, I think for me, um, I'm. There's low. there's so many examples, but I'm trying to think of very you, you picked a TV, so I'll I'll not do that. I'll I'll pick a book. One of my all-time favourite books is an investigation and it's called Flicker oh, by yes. Theodore Rozak. And yeah. it's all about effectively the secret history of cinema. Yeah. And um it's wonderful. It, you kind of you're kind of reading it and you kinda of go this sounds so real <laughs> at times you kind of start kind to of question whether these characters actually, are these fictional characters or real characters but no it genuinely um a great a great mystery a great investigation with a with a great ending and i would recommend that
2: yeah and for me i think um yeah a combination of investigation and slowly building horror and personal stakes and and general fucked up in this i'd go for series one of true detective yes um, yes yeah i, mean, I thought it, one of you would
3: mention it <laughs> yeah I mean, it's, it, it's
2: got all the elements i love there i mean, you know the only weakness i think from an investigative point of view is the final solution does seem to hinge on a clue that at least to me makes no fucking sense apart from that i think it's, it's as close to my idea of a perfect investigation as possible mm-hmm.
1: I'm going to go with one we've already mentioned as it's one of my favourites um, into film territory, Angel Heart because I I just love it it's fantastic, yeah. it's dark, it's grim it's horrible, it hasn't got a happy ending it and it's all my boxes
2: and it's personal as well oh very, yeah mm.
1: they say the eggs are like a soul Matt yeah. would you like an egg? <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
2: nom nom <laughs>
0: Okay, well, that wraps up our look at investigative games over the last two episodes. I hope we've uh, chatted that thoroughly and maybe discovered
3: a few things. It's still a mystery to me.
2: <laughs> <laughs> Do you want to be invited back, Mike?
0: <laughs> so it's a good night from me. Cheerio
1: from me. Farewell from me. And tara from me. <laughs>
2: But of course the big news This episode Is that William S Burrows is back from the dead And has been reborn as a spam bot He would have wanted it that way I, I think
1: I, so Yeah Yeah.
2: So just to give this some context, there is a dodgy website out there, which I will not link to from the show notes, which uh, purports to have illegal downloads of a lot of PDFs, including the two-headed serpent. And uh, they pad out the description of uh, their downloads with some computer-generated text, which seems to follow the cut-up technique and draws from a lot of esoteric sources, I think. And the text that they came up with, to flummox or, or tempt search engines in this case, is quite, well, special. And I think it's only fair that we give a dramatic reading of it.
1: Westminster is the Arab. Thereby, Vicid Seti was being authentically Pope Cthulhu about the stockholder.
2: Sign writer, uncloaked through a Joni. Targs
1: is the epic thyolite. Family is munificently the two-headed serpent toward the bane.
2: In posse afterthought, license is the Nicole.
0: Thrillingly Afghani slowpoke is a intention.
1: Arabic Enoch, extremely implacable, gets around snarkily for the stagnantly unsophisticated fur fur.
2: Soot flakes were the modishly Jurassic epic scopes.
0: Transrenane frazzle was decadently boring. Personable Jana can round up.
2: Misleading Almond can mingle.
0: Cereal Methadone must plead from the splintered possessorship.
2: Neoprenes
1: can bloat.
2: Pulp Cthulhu is the handsomely deplorable gaiety. Unspoiled reselection in fixes.
1: Bearably unvarnished Jared has quipped from the gastronomic foraminifier.
2: Superfluous aborts were the threnetic multivalves.
0: Concussive spaniel canon fetter per the synthetically drony
2: yardage.